please turn with me to Exodus 15:22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statues, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, With that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I might may test them whether they will walk in my law or not on the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in it will be twice as much as they gather daily so Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel at evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord for what are we that you grumble grumble against us and Moses said When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've come this morning and there's a gap in your life between where you thought your life would be and where you are today, you're going to be glad you came to church. If you woke up this morning and thought, oh man, another day. Or, how is this week going to turn out? You're going to be glad you came to church today. Let's pray. Father, we come because we're needy people. And there's lots of gaps in this room. There's financial gaps. There's marriage gaps. There's singleness gaps. There's career gaps. There's all sorts of things related to parenting and life and careers and money. And Lord, we, uh, we need your help today. Because we're prone to panic. We're prone to fear. And we need to hear your word and see how you dealt with Israel so we can be reminded how you've dealt with us in Christ. So help us today. I pray that today would just be a a beautiful reminder for some that you can be trusted and you can be trusted every single day. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we began our study of Exodus, I I told you that there are a number of concepts in the New Testament, and and even things, if you're not all that familiar with the Bible, ideas that I'm I'm sure you've heard, 
at one time or not in your lifetime. And, and those ideas, many of them in the Bible, and just ideas that you've heard before, have their roots, their foundation in the book of Exodus. Uh, concepts like a sacrificial lamb, um, the firstborn, the idea of God calling himself I am, the whole idea of an exodus, of something being brought out or somebody being brought out, all have their beginnings in this glorious book. And today we're going to look at another one, one that I'm sure that most of us are familiar with. In fact, you could, I'm sure, fill in this blank. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm sure you're familiar with that. It's part of the Lord's Prayer. You may have prayed it once, may have prayed it a hundred times. But what we find in Exodus 15 and 16 is this concept of daily bread expressed through the provision of manna. This concept of daily bread has its roots in the Exodus narrative. So far we've um, seen God establish his covenant relationship with the people. He, um, he told them in Exodus 13 that they are his. Then we saw God deliver them through the Red Sea, destroying Pharaoh's army in Exodus 14. Then we saw Israel celebrate the beautiful warrior-like aspects of who God is in Exodus 15. And now, in the latter part of 15 and into chapter 16, the people of Israel face another challenge. And I'll guarantee you it's a challenge that you faced. The challenge goes something like this. Can God be trusted not only in the big things, but can he be trusted every single day? Can God be trusted not just in the major life events, but can you wake up every day in 24-hour increments and say, God, I can trust you. I can trust you. I can trust you. You see, we've seen so far that God is a God who delivers. And this whole section is about the fact that God is able to provide. And in our text today, we're going to see is that God provides in that he can be trusted every single day. That's why I said that if you woke up today and there's gaps in your life, there's things that you are struggling with, maybe it's money, maybe it's something going on in relationships around you, maybe your life just, quite frankly, hasn't turned out like you thought it would. Maybe you're kind of in the middle of a crisis of, of, of life, kind of a midlife crisis, like, what's going on? And the reality is, sometimes the hardest thing to do when you're in the middle of that is to live every single day. I mean, you'd like a definitive crisis where it could turn right or left, but it's kind of hard to live when every single day you've got to depend on, breathe, and live on God's grace. And what we're going to see in this text is a beautiful principle in the Scriptures that the God who delivers is the God who provides, and He provides every single day. So, take your Bibles, let's look at Exodus 15. What we see introduced here in Exodus 15, first of all, is the problem of grumbling. And and where all of this kind of starts is with a a negative spirit within the heart of Israel. Even though they have just been delivered from the Red Sea, it isn't that long until they are faced with difficulties. In fact, this word grumbling is used um, eight times in chapter 16 alone. It's the first time that it appears in entire content of Scripture shows up here in Exodus 15 and verse 24. The the issue as to why they're grumbling begins in verse 22. It says, Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Now let's just note here, that's a big deal. You can't live very long without water. And about three days in, they've run out of water and they're thirsty. And then it says, when they came to Marah, they couldn't drink the water. So what happens 
here is that Israel has run out of water. Remember, Moses was a shepherd, probably knew this area, and may have remembered that there were some springs in the Mara region. And so he directed the people there. And you can imagine if you're thirsty and suddenly you see uh, a little body of water, the people no doubt were like running towards it. Yes, yes, water. We got, we got water. Finally got water. And then they got down into the water, started to drink it, and they're spitting it out. It's disgusting. Some sort of minerals or something like that must have been involved. And, you know, it's kind of a dramatic moment when someone spits out water. Not usually an attractive or very happy moment, is it? In fact, I remember my, my favorite water spitting or, or spitting moment in my lifetime was when I was about 11 years old. I loved to play practical jokes on my parents, which they sometimes enjoyed. And this particular one was, was not so enjoyable to my dad. He would have a glass of milk with his meals and Sunday afternoons. And so one day, around April Fool's Day, I uh, replaced his regular 2% milk with buttermilk. Okay? Now, now, if I have any children here, just my disclaimer is, kids, do not do this. At least not more than once, okay? So just don't, don't do this. So I put buttermilk, and if you've ever, like, chugged buttermilk, which I can't imagine if you have, but it doesn't taste real good. So my dad, enjoying the Sunday afternoon meal, we're all spread around this table. Isn't it a great day, kids? And guk, guk, next thing I know, he is spraying the whole table. What is this? And I was like, yeah, you know? So it, it was, it was not, a fun moment for him is a gloriously fun moment for me. But there's nothing, there's nothing attractive and, and very positive about spraying a substance from your mouth. You're just like, what is this? And no doubt they were not happy with Moses. It was bitter, and therefore it was named Mara. So the, the bitterness then of the water then leads to a bitter heart, and they begin to turn on Moses. Look at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, and they didn't say it like, hey Moses, what should we drink? And they were saying it like that. They were like, whatever, this is disgusting water. What are we going to drink? They're all over him. They're in his grill, right? What are we going to drink? Grumble. That's an important word. You know what that word means? Before I tell you what it means, it's interesting. That word is always connected to the word against. So it's like verbal assault. You're, you're against someone because of bad circumstances. So you, you, you grumble because something's happened to you and someone else is to blame. The, the word grumble is the external expression of an internal rebellion. The word grumble is closely linked to a word for rebel. In, in other words, what you wouldn't be able to necessarily express physically, you just express verbally but but make no mistake about it it is another form of rebellion and grumbling comes because circumstances are hard because they're difficult because suddenly now we're inconvenienced or we have issues and so things are hard and so rather than expressing it physically like why are you like this or you gave us bad water instead we just express it verbally now conveniently we've set up a test for you about grumbling in the parking lot and just, just so you know, we, we, we've designed all of this because we want to see how much like the Israelites are you, right? So, so you know, the, the traffic flow may not be the best this morning. It's wet and raining and there's a plethora of cones and you're like seeing orange all over the place. But the reality is we've got this all set up. Yeah, the roundabout thing, that's there. But the real issue is we want to see how much are you like the Israelites? See, the reality is some of you, you can't go left, you can't go right. You want to get out of the car and throw up your hands. But the reality, you won't do that because you're sensible Indiana folks with who's your values. I mean, you won't do that, right? 
But instead, what you do is all the way, oh, you grumble, 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 grumble. If I was that police officer, I wouldn't be directing traffic like that. These cones aren't lined up right. Right? And the reality is we know, we listen, we know, and you're not passing the test. Right? When you grumble, don't grumble. Grumbling's bad. Right? Gravel's godly. Grumbling's bad. Okay? So, grumbling is an issue not just between us and other people. Actually, grumbling is between us and God. Because the reality of what we're doing when we're grumbling is we're saying, I, I deserve to have life better than what it is. Even if water is the issue, even if Moses is the leader, ultimately they're grumbling, the grumbling of Israelites, and our grumbling is directed towards God. So, although Israel is grumbling and they're pointing it towards Moses and Aaron, their real problem is God... And grumbling gives in to the fear that God isn't interested in our daily needs. It gives in to the panic that God only takes care of the big things. And at the end of the day, grumbling is really a lack of faith. It's a subtle and internal form of rebellion. Now, the issue of bitter water then is solved, God points Moses to a log, and he puts the log in the water, the water turns sweet, and everybody's happy. That's all it took. It's crazy, isn't it? Just make sweet water, and now everything's good again. That's all it took, just sweet water. Then the Lord enters the picture, and in verse 26, lays down a principle. Chapter 15, verse 26, he says this, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Why does he say this? Does he, does he mean that they won't ever get sick? Does he mean they won't ever have any struggles? Does he mean that they won't have any diseases? No, that's not what he means. What he means is this, is that the inclination of God's heart towards his people is not like the inclination of his heart towards the Egyptians. In other words, when Israel faces difficulties, when they have gaps in their life, when they don't have water and they think they need it, when they come into difficulties, there's a part of the brain of the human mind that would say something like this, you know what, God's out to get me. He's not for me, he's against me. God is fighting against me. He's going to punish me like he punished the Egyptians. And God lays it down here for Israel to say, you never have to wonder about that. I am the Lord, your healer. I always have your best in mind. I am a God who has bought you. You're, you belong to me. You're my children. I have the best of intentions in mind for you. And that's why God lays down this principle in verse 26. And that's also why chapter 15 ends in verse 27 with the arrival in a place called Elam, which boasted 12 springs and 70 palm trees. No mistake in those numbers. Perfect number of palm trees, enough springs for each of the tribes of Israel. So God brings his people through another failure. He brings them through their first wilderness failure. And then that raises another issue that we need to talk about. And that is the matter of divine testing. In fact, the hope of divine testing. So what you're going to find throughout the book of of Exodus, and for that matter, through the rest of the Bible, is that God has a plan for Israel, just like he has a plan for your life and mine. And he intends for Israel, as he intends for you and for me, to learn some important lessons, specifically some important lessons about what it means to really trust him. So God has delivered Israel from Egypt. He's going to lead them to Mount Sinai. They're on a journey 
But along the way, there are things for their own good that they have to learn. And therefore, God tests them. Now, for some of you, you may not have a category in your brain for God testing you. But the reality is you need to. See, the issue here for Israel is that God tested them at the Red Sea. That was a one-time major event. But now we're going to move into another kind of testing. And frankly, this kind of testing is really hard. And that is the test that comes every single day. In a moment, you're going to see that every morning that Israel woke up, they had to pass a test. And the test was, is God really going to meet our needs or not? Actually, I would argue that probably the greater test was when they went to bed at night. Is God going to show up the next morning? So, once again, we see Israel fall prey to the problem of grumbling as their needs in the wilderness surface. Look at verse 3 of chapter 16. So after they go out in the wilderness and they're hungry, I mean, God's just provided water, right? But now they're hungry. Suddenly now, horrible things are coming out of their mouths. Would that we would have died, this is verse 3, would that we would have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. You've brought us out in the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. A little dramatic reading in there. I just added that because that's, I mean, whining, whining, whining. And for that matter, they said even rather blasphemous things, didn't they? I mean, they said, would that we would have died by the hand of the Lord. Would that God would have killed us. Lucky God didn't right then and there. Okay, you know, there we go. Start over. Next few verses help us understand God's aim in all of this. He has purposes beyond what they're seeing in the immediacy. Look at verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out. And notice the focus on a day. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So just note here that everything about this provision of reigning bread was designed to help the people learn what it meant to trust in God, and specifically what it meant to trust in God every single day. Now, we'll talk about that more in just a moment, but first, I just want to establish in your mind and heart a category, and that is this category of divine testing. I mean, when you hear the word test, my my guess is you don't have a positive reaction in your soul. I mean, unless you're, you know, kind of nerdy or something like that. Yeah, test, you know, so just... Not a normal response, a test, right? What we need to do is maybe change the, the, the concept of test a little bit in our minds and heart. Because the idea of being tested doesn't mean being tempted. Clearly the Bible tells us that God doesn't tempt anyone. Satan is the agency of temptation. And yet at the same time, what God does do is put us in scenarios that help us to make the jump between the theoretical and the practical. To help us to make the jump between what we learn and then what we actually live. What, what testing does is to prove or to validate not just our learning, but also to prove or validate God's worthiness to be trusted. So the concept of a test 
is given in order to see if what you believe is what you really live. So God's purpose in the testing of Israel is to help them, not to trick them. His goal and his aim is hopeful, not harmful. The idea is this, is that when when we come together on Sundays and we're talking about God's Word and you're singing and everything else, this, this is not the real world. This is more like a practice. This is more like scrimmage. And when you go out in the world and you experience gaps in life, when, when, when your life expectations are here and life ends up being here, when, when you thought marriage, marriage is going to be like this, and it's like this, when you had these ideas about what your career was going to be like, and you have all these concepts, I'm going to do this and this and this, and then it ends up here. When you think about how much money you need and the money's here, you wish the money was here, your needs are here, but your money is there. Those gaps in life, whether you're married or single, whether you're young or old, we all have those gaps. You know what those gaps are, friends? Those gaps are spiritual game times. That's suddenly when it's time to suit up and to realize all of our life we've been learning and we've been um, experiencing taking the biblical principles, putting into our soul, into our heart. And in that moment, when there's a gap between what you expected life to be and where life is really at, when you run into a bump and you're like, I wish it was like this and it's not and it's like that, that is the moment when it's game time. Is God able to meet your need in that moment? That is what you're practicing for. And what God does is he divines, he designs divine tests to help validate in our hearts and in our souls that God really is worthy to be trusted. Now, interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul takes this idea from the Old Testament and he transports it and explains it in the New Testament. Take your Bible, go go look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uses the Old Testament stories, the examples of the Israelites, and he explains why those stories are in the Bible. And essentially what he says is these stories are in the Bible so we could see how the Israelites lived and then have us ask ourselves some questions about how we should live. So look at 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 6. He says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So you see the Old Testament stories. You're like, wow, they really desired evil. I shouldn't desire evil. Do not be idolaters as some were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat, drink, rose up to play. That uh, That's a reference, by the way, to what happened with the golden calf. We must... Not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happen as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So Paul says all of this was written down in the Bible so we could look at the Old Testament saints, see how they acted, see what happened to them, and then realize how we ought to live in light of the fullness that we have received from Christ. And then Paul gives one of the most helpful passages, I think, that is in the entire Bible. I have used this over and over in counseling and meetings with people. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 to 13, it says this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So if you are in here and you're like, no big deal, those gaps. Take heed. Take heed lest he fall. And then a promise. No temptation. By the way, that word can also be translated as trial. So no trial has overtaken you. That is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
That passage is so helpful. There are four promises in there. The first promise is you are not alone. It says, there is no temptation that has taken you, but such as is common to mankind. In other words, you're not the only person to struggle with this. Number two, it says that God is faithful. No matter what happens in life, God is always faithful. You can bank your life on that. And gap moments are when you need to be reminded of that. Third, the promise is that this temptation or trial will not crush you. He will not give you more than you bear, even though it feels like this is killing me. It isn't. Even though it feels like this is going to crush me, it won't. And then he says, but we'll provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So the way of escape isn't running away. The way of escape isn't having wings like a dove to fly the mountain like the psalmist said. The way of escape is finding the grace that in the midst of difficulties, God helps you to endure it. See, the reason why... We have these testing moments in the Old Testament is to help us know how we should live in the new. So there are things that God wants us to learn. There's things that God wants you to learn today. But those things, you don't learn them theoretically. You learn them by testing, by practice. Charles Spurgeon called the wilderness a university for Israel. He said this, The wilderness was the Oxford and Cambridge for God's students. They went to the university and he taught and trained them and they took their degree before they entered into the promised land. They needed to learn how to really trust the Lord. So I don't know what kind of gaps you've got in your life. I bet there's hundreds of gap sort of issues in our congregation today. But can I just remind you, no matter what the gap is, you're not alone. God is faithful, this won't crush you, and God will give you the grace to find a way to be able to bear it. So, grumbling, testing, now I can't wait to talk to you about manna. Exodus 16 records the miraculous provision of food, and God sends them manna from heaven. But you need to know that manna from heaven was not just about food. Manna from heaven was a platform upon which the people were to learn some important lessons about their God. Think of this way. Manna was meant to be a conduit to show them beautiful things about what it meant to trust the Lord. What it meant to trust God every single day. So, there's a couple observations that I want to make here about the issue of manna. First, is the context for this lesson was a need. Or think of it as a gap. So, in other words, the people have a need... And in the midst of this need, God isn't interested in just meeting their needs. He wants to meet their needs and to be able to teach them a lesson. And do you know God still does that? He still wants to use our need moments in order to teach us a lesson. And that's what I hope some of you walk away with today, realizing that, you know what, this need that I have in my life is actually a divine appointment for me to learn some great things about God. And rather than resisting it, and walking around with this sort of chip on your shoulder, a grumbling spirit, like, I got a need, I got a need, I got a need, that you ought to say, you know, I got a need, and it's an opportunity for God to show up. Once again, we see the grumbling, complaining spirit of God's people. Look at verse 2. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, Would that we would have died by the hand of the Lord. We sat by meat pots. You've brought us out in the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So this is a a loaded statement. Their immediate need caused fear and then tempted them to go down a dangerous path. So the question is, when a need comes in your life, do you see it as entirely negative? Or do you see it as, man, here we go, this is game time. Secondly, what God does is He uses a need to teach a greater lesson to them 
about daily provision. In other words, God uses the gap in their life in order for them to learn some things about His ability to meet their needs every single day. Look at verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out, and notice how often the word day is used, people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them. So this test is going to happen every single day. Whether they will walk in my law or not. And on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Israel had faced crisis moments before and God had showed up. But in this scenario, God is going to use their physical hunger, so linked to their humanity... He's going to use their physical hunger in order to teach them a lesson about him every single day. And every single day they are going to face a test. And the test was going to be this. Are you going to believe that God's going to provide or not? Are you going to obey and follow in God's law or not? And this issue of God's law and their hunger are absolutely linked. God is linking the reality of where they live and obedience to him. And the the link is faith. Are you going to take your need and believe that God is going to be true to his word or not? And every one of us face that question today. Are you going to take where you're at and believe that God's word is true and his promises are real and you can bank your life on them, not just in general, not just once in a lifetime, but his promises are so sure. They are so rock solid that you can bank your life on God's promises every single day. You can get up day after day in a bad marriage and say, God, I, I can, I, you helping me, I can do this. You can get up in the middle of disappointing career pathways and say, God, I, I can do this, you helping me. You can get up in the middle of children who don't listen to you the first time they're, they're told to do things and say, God, I thought this would be great being parents. It's really hard and I would like to get out of this, but they're here and I got to feed them and I'm stuck and I got Cheerios all over the floor and it's just, you know, you're, uh, and the reality is you, you can believe, God, I'm, I'm going to believe every single day that you can give me grace. Are you going to believe that 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is true or not? Do you think you're the only one who's ever faced this in the world? Do you think this is too much than you can bear? Do you think God has forgotten about you? Do you think you just got to run away from all of the issues? Well, the reality is you've got a choice, a choice you've got to make today. Are you going to believe God's word or are you going to believe your circumstances? And that's the link that God wants Israel to make. And he uses manna to help them make that link. Manna was not just about food. Manna was actually about trusting God. Here's what God will do. He will use their physical hunger for food to show them that their ultimate satisfaction really is found in God. He uses the gap to point them to Him. In fact, third, the provision of food is actually directly connected to the glory of God. In in chapter 16 and verse 10, God tells Moses he's going to provide, but he also, he's going to show up in, by virtue of his manifest glory in the cloud. In the evening, they're going to receive meat, according to verse 6, bread in the morning. And verse 7 tells us that it will be a reminder that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, his daily provision for them will be a reminder that they belong to him in the first place. What happens here is that God is going to merge their needs and the provision of manna and his glory 
And Israel is going to learn that they can trust Him every single day. And that leads us to the fourth thing. Verses 13 to 21 show us that the provision was sufficient for each day. Go to uh, verses uh, 18, 19, and 20. Actually, let's start in verse 16. The, The instructions here are so specific. This is what the Lord has commanded regarding manna. Gather of it each of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. So there's no wiggle room. God has said, you got six people? That's six omers. No more. So God very specifically designed how much they could collect. Verse 17. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. Because some people had more people in their tent, some people had less. Verse 18. When they measured it, With an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. In other words, no leftovers. I mean, kids, you always thought God was against leftovers, didn't you? But here it is, right? So, So no leftovers. So practically, let's, let's work this out. How's this, what's, what's going on here? It means that every day they woke up and there was manna, bread on the ground. They would go out and they would collect enough manna. They would make it for the day and they were to consume all of it so that at the end of the day, they had nothing left over. Nothing. So every night, they were to go to bed and they would have no food for the morning. Nothing. So they collect during the day And then they eat it all, and then they wake up the next morning with nothing in the storehouse. Then notice what else happens. But they did not listen to Moses. Surprise, surprise. Some left part of it till the morning. I mean, you can imagine this conversation. Well, look, it's got little leftovers here. Let's just store some under the mattress. And tomorrow morning, when the kids get hungry, we'll just pull out some manna and everything else. And after all, we don't know. If, I mean, it's, it's on the ground. And what if the weather changes and it blows, you know, into to, to, to Jim Bob's tent area? And we don't have any spot to, to... Is Jim Bob Jewish? Probably not. I don't know. So um, Jehoiakim Bob's tent. And so... <laughs> It'll blow over in his side, and we won't have any to, 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 to eat, so we had to store some. And the next morning they pull it out, it's got worms in it. So the, so the crazy lesson is, is if you don't believe God, you're going to have, it's, it's going to dissolve, it's, it's going to be nothing available. It'll turn wormy the next day. And then look at verse 21. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat, but when the sun grew hot, it melted. In other words, every morning they woke up and it was there, but it wasn't there forever, and they gathered just enough for each and every day, and they couldn't take anything more than what they could consume, and if they did, it spoiled and it got rotten. And this is the way they lived their lives. Every night they went to bed with absolutely nothing for the next morning, hoping and believing in faith that God would show up the next day and give them what they needed. Folks, manna is not about food is not about food. This manna thing is about people going to bed at night thinking, God, my kids are going to be hungry tomorrow. I'm going to be hungry tomorrow. And if you don't show up, I'm not going to have any food. No wonder it is that this is called our daily bread. 
Daily bread is not just about the provision of food. It is about whether or not God can be trusted that when the storehouse is blank, when the bank account's at zero, when it seems as though you've reached the end of your rope and you go to bed at night and you say to your spouse or you say to a friend, I don't know how I'm going to do this one more day, you wake up and the next morning, guess what? God shows up and you live another 24 hours and you do it again and do it again and do it again. And the God who delivers is the God who can be trusted every single day of your life, even when the gaps are scary, like freak out scary. I think it wasn't scary laying in tent wondering the next morning there's going to be manna on the ground? Certainly it was. Israel had to learn that God could be trusted every day to meet their needs. And in that provision, the people were learning some great truths about God. That you're not just a God who takes care of us through great Red Sea crossings. You actually care enough about us that you show up every day. And then... Here's the other thing. Sabbath rest is a part of this provision rhythm. You know what's crazy? First time the word Sabbath is mentioned in the entire Bible, right here. Right here. Look at verse 23. This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Take what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. Well, remember what happened six days a week? You do that and you got worms the next day. But one day a week, they're commanded to do it. And so they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. So people are learning a lesson. Every day we collect food. Six days a week we collect it. If we store it, it has worms. One day a week on that sixth day going into the Sabbath, we collect double the portion. We bake it. We store it. And guess what? The next morning, no worms. Moses says, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. And here's why. Here's the biblical principle. Six days you shall gather it, but the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there shall be none. This is really important. We'll we'll look at this in full when we talk about the Ten Commandments, but I just want to introduce it to you here that every day Israel had to live by faith. They had to believe that God was going to provide to meet their needs. They had to make the link between their lives and God's Word and make that link of faith. But it also meant that if you got into this pattern of every day you got to get up and get manna, every day get up and get manna, every day get up and get manna, pretty soon your life is all about getting manna every day. Getting up, get manna, get manna, get manna, get manna, get manna. And God in His wise providence creates one day of the week and says, nope, no manna that day. Why? Because God wants us to know, He wants Israel to know, that life is not all about manna collection. At the end of the day, the daily provision was about God, so was the seventh day, the day of rest. A day that was, re- that was really given in order to remind human beings that at the end of the day, you're really not on earth to gather manna. You're here in order to be a person who has a relationship with your Creator. And so this seventh day of rest was designed to be a day of intentional non-gathering so that you could be reminded that life is not all about collecting manna. It's a reminder that collecting and baking and storing manna is not what should define you. That again, your ultimate need isn't about manna, it is about God. In fact, when Moses was reflecting on this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, he said it so incredibly clearly. He said this, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you didn't know and your fathers didn't know, that he may make you know, listen to this, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. It's beautiful. 
Do you know why he gave them manna? And you know why there was one day a week when there was no manna? He gave them manna and he gave no manna for the same purpose so that people would know that your need in life is not food. It is the Word of God. That at the end of the day, the ultimate satisfaction of the human soul doesn't come from collecting or gathering or making and baking. It comes from living and loving the Word of God. So let me just give you some thoughts from this text that we can take home with us. First is this. Number one, the ultimate need in the human heart is to know God. Listen to me. The lesson that Israel needed to learn is the same lesson that God wants us to learn today, and it's this, that manna or money, they feel pressing and urgent, but neither food or finances will really truly satisfy Oh, I know we got gaps in our life, we all do. But the fact of the matter is, is that those divinely designed gaps, they're meant to, at, to have you ask questions about yourself and then point you to God. And the problem is, is that some of you are here today and you spent your life trying to chase after gap fillers and nothing will fill the gap. And the reality is that's divinely designed. It is that only Jesus Christ can fill that gap in the soul. You can make all the money in the world. You can have every dream you've ever wanted. You can have everything you've ever wanted, and but it'll never be enough. You'll never be truly satisfied. Provisions are meant to point us Godward. And it's no wonder then that Jesus comes in the New Testament and he says that he, he is the bread coming from heaven that gives life to the world in John 6, 33. Jesus says, I'm the true manna. I show up and I've been been given to you to give you what you actually really need. It is only through Jesus that we experience the real satisfaction of our ultimate hunger and thirst. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me will never hunger and never thirst. What does it mean? That when you come to Jesus, you finally understand what it means to be fully human and in a right relationship with God. Listen to me. Money and your career and relationships and all of the pursuing and pursuing and pursuing. Some of you are working so many hours a week. You're trying to climb the corporate ladder, trying to create the perfect family. Got all these things going on. And the fact is you're miserable and the reason is because the gap in your life is meant to be filled by christ not by all these other things the ultimate need in the human heart is to know god number two the beautiful thing the bible tells us is that god is still the provider of everything whether it's manna or money or grace the same god that took care of israel is the same god that's ready to take care of you today in fact when the apostle paul was thinking about this in regards to generosity in regards to giving which is really an important thing to think about because what happens when you give money away, you're creating a gap. You, you give away money and you immediately create a gap. I have this much money and now I gave it away, so now I got this much and there's a gap there. And in that creation of that gap, you are in effect saying something deeply spiritual about your trust in God. And what you say is what Paul says in Second Corinthians 9, that God, you are able to make all grace abound to me, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, I can abound for every good work. In other words, God, I'm giving this money away because at the end of the day, my trust is not in my money or my financial security or my portfolio or my insurance or my security that I have around my family at the end of the day my hope is in you and you are able to meet my needs you're able to give me grace finally this text reminds us that sabbath rest and generosity are vital expressions of a person's faith in god so my questions for you today are these do you believe god will provide for you 
Do you believe He really cares for you? Do you believe that the God who delivers is the God who will provide? If so, that intentional, worshipful rest combined with generous giving, these are the ways that we affirm the truth that we really believe that God will provide. So let me just be straight up. If you work and you never rest, you don't believe God will provide. If you work and you never give, you don't believe God will provide. I don't care if you tell me God will provide, then show it. Give. These, these are the tests. The, the, the manna-like daily tests. By resting and giving, we say, God, I know that working all the time and hoarding my money will never give me the security that comes from knowing you. Therefore, I choose to rest and I choose to give. My identity doesn't come from what I do. It comes from who I am. And I'll never be secure with all this stuff. I'm ultimately secure in you. So, do you see how manna was just the starting point? It was the starting point for lessons that human beings should never take the daily pursuit of their needs as the single passion of their life. Manna was given to feed their stomachs, but it was also given in order to feed their soul. Manna reminds us that God can be trusted every single day. In fact, Jeremiah, he put it this way. Just hear this in light of the manna discussion. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies, they never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. It is that you would say, Jesus, you're my manna. I can hope in you. Would you pray with me? Church, i got to believe that in a congregation this size, there's some of you that just have such huge gaps today. And can I just remind you that today is not by coincidence. Some of you have been so filled with fear and doubt. And today is just a reminder that God is for you. He's not against you. And before you just dismiss and go in, in, in the rest of your day and all the good things, can you just take a moment and just consider... If God really is your portion, if He really can be trusted, can you just roll whatever's going on inside of your soul onto Him and just say, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. Lord, I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. I don't know what the next day's going to bring. I don't know what a year's going to bring. But Lord, today, just, just help me. Lord, give me this day my daily bread. So, so Lord, help us to live in those increments of daily provision. Help us not to get ahead of you in terms of what you provide. And give us the faith to link our need with your promise. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're the ultimate satisfier of everything we need in our hearts. So help us to believe you and trust you. Help us to believe that you can be trusted every single day. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, if you need to talk to somebody about what it means to be satisfied in Christ, we'll have some folks up here. 
If you uh, need someone to pray with you about the gap in your life, they're here too, okay? All right? God bless you. Have a great day. I love you. It's game time.